Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen, and I'm joined by RCD contributor John Waters. Today, we are talking with journalist and combat veteran Ben Kessling about his new book, Bravo Company, in Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. It's the story of one unit of the famed 82nd Airborne, their tour in Kandahar's notorious Arganda Valley, and the impact on their lives in the years after. By the end of their deployment, three soldiers had been killed in action, a dozen more grievously injured, and nearly half the company awarded Purple Hearts. In the decades since, two more have died by suicide with a dozen others attempting and still more admitting they had considered it. It is a story about the lasting price of war and how to help those who have paid it. Ben, welcome to Hot Wash. John, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, we have this. This has kind of been a little bit of a theme uh, in the last several shows that we've we had Jason Kander on here talking about his mental health struggles uh, from his deployment. Uh, we had uh, Bill B, a combat veteran who's profiled in Wills Robinson's book, The Shot, uh, talking about his experiences and the challenges of reintegrating into civilian life. Uh, tell us about your book. First of all, just who were the men of Bravo and what kind of duty was Argandab Valley? Yeah, so the the men of Bravo Company were part of, and it was all men at this time. It was two thousand nine. Uh, so uh, it, it is a story about the the men in an infantry unit. Um, these men deployed to Afghanistan in in two thousand nine, and uh, they initially went over without having a real mission. They were part of the initial right before uh, uh, the surge of, uh, then, uh, then newly elected president of Barack Obama. He, he was surging in the, uh, in the Afghanistan, but before they decided those troop numbers, they kind of, they sent a, uh, the U S sent a, a brigade of troops, about 4,000 people over there. Uh, and they didn't have a mission. Um, and as your listeners and anybody who's served knows to send folks into a, combat zone without a mission is uh, a some sort of a form of heresy um, for, for policymakers. But this brigade, they went to Afghanistan with a little more mission than uh, to go over and uh, to do some training. Well, uh, the units that were under the, under the brigade, uh, they did some advise and assist stuff with uh, Afghan military. But the battalion that Bravo Company was a part of, they found their way into actual combat. Uh, they went into the Argandab Valley uh, and soon found themselves um, fighting the Taliban. Uh, and you know, when you say fighting the Taliban at this time, it wasn't firefights. They rarely saw the enemy. It was mostly dealing with the hidden terrors of IEDs, um, finding them, detecting them, stepping on them. Uh, and there was that sort of that horror of, of, the, of that deployment um, was in not knowing what was going to be out there with each step? So that's the that's sort of the deployment for for Bravo Company. Now, I met them a decade after their service. I was writing a story for the Wall Street Journal about a reunion they had because they had had so much. They had, had that trauma on that deployment, and then in the years since, some of the men um, died by their own hands, or attempted, or started talking about it. And the leadership of the unit. Um, and a, uh, and a veteran service organization decided they wanted to stanch that bleeding. They wanted to try to stop it by bringing everyone together in a novel reunion so that these men weren't treated as individual entities floating around after their deployment, but they were brought back together as a team, the sort of team that they had when they were in the army. And by rem reminding themselves of that camaraderie and that support, they might be able to, um, to, to keep each other um, healthy and to, and, to, and to move forward and grow from that deployment. And that's sort of the that's the context in which I started following them and, and writing about writing about Bravo Company. And, and you had served in Afghanistan as well. You were a Marine. That's correct. Yeah. So um, I was a uh, I was a Marine infantry officer and uh, I was a platoon commander in Fallujah in 2007. And then I was uh, I was in Afghanistan uh, just after that, uh, serving on uh, uh, ISAF NATO uh, in an ISAF NATO role. Uh, fairly close to where these men would deploy, so I um, was familiar with the landscape, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And and were there aspects of their experience that resonated with your own? Yeah, I mean, the the th with when these men came back together to, for their reunion, I talk about this by saying that they have they had a congruent experience. <clears throat> 
a congruent experience, which is to say that they knew exactly what each other went through because they were there beside each other and with each other. But for other folks who have deployed um, in any combat zone, really, but especially in Afghanistan, a lot of us have had similar experiences or know what that experience could be like or have a familiarity with the area. And there is um, there's an aspect of 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 service generally of deploying uh, specifically, and then also going to, to certain parts of the world where you have a you have a decent idea and a decent um, uh, comradeship that grows out of that. And so, in talking with them, I was able to I was able to have uh, frank uh, frank conversations that sort of cut cut to the quick, cut right to the heart of the matter because we. Um, they, uh, I, I think I, you know, I can only can't fully speak for them, but I think that they trusted that I had the infantryman's background and mindset to have these conversations. And in the book, it's a it's a third person account. I'm not in the book at all. Uh, it's all about Bravo Company because it's about their story. This right, isn't some right, another right. memoir or something. This is their story. And um, but because of my experience and what I, you know, what I've done and, um, and having been a Marine, I infuse that knowledge into, um, translating their story because, you know, telling anyone's story, um, telling any sort of, uh, long form narrative, you're acting almost as a, as an interpreter, right? Um, the way you interpret from a foreign language, you're interpreting these experiences, this real life, this memory that people have, uh, into, uh, into language that goes into a book. And I think that to be an effective interpreter, you really have to, you have to know the language that you're translating to and from. And I think that having this Marine Corps background, having been an infantryman myself and having covered the Pentagon and the VA for a decade for the Wall Street Journal, that all allows me to be a much more effective interpreter. John Waters, what was your response to reading the book? Ben, the characters in this book jump off the page immediately and all of your experience really is brought to bear in fleshing these people out. It's almost like it's a kinetic feeling reading the first chapter even uh, because you can sense you're grasping every single aspect of these people and their histories and their emotions because you've seen it and felt it all before. And so I want to talk about these guys. Uh, I was thinking in reading back through the first couple of chapters uh, of uh, Fields of Fire, a novel by Jim Webb, and this scene at the end of it when his Harvard graduate character Goodrich is back from Vietnam and injured, and he steps in front of a protest crowd, and he said, I saw dudes, man, dudes, and truck drivers and coal miners and farmers. I didn't see you. Where were you? This is a cathartic moment for Webb, no doubt. But I wonder if you could just tell us about these dudes. Yeah, uh, well- in order to talk about in order to talk about the dudes, right, the men from Bravo Company, um, I, I think we got to talk a little bit about what we what our expectation is of veterans, right? And like, um, you know, the majority of the majority of our fellow citizens haven't served in uniform, and that's I mean, this is no no knock on them, right? This is an all volunteer force that we that we have these days, but to understand um, what it means to go to war, to go to modern uh, you know modern war. And to come back from it, something that can be f- so foreign to people and can be so foreign to to our fellow citizens um, who who send troops who send us there and ret- and welcome us home. And a lot of times, there's a sort of monolithic uh, a monolithic idea of what happens in war and as a veteran, right? Like there's this I- almost like a script I talk about where somebody joins, they go to war, they come back broken. That's the story. That's the one we all know. Everybody's got PTSD, whatever, right? <laughs> but that's not the truth, right? Right. The truth of it is that war is an extraordinary experience. It's something out of the ordinary that people go through. And just like any extraordinary experience that we under that we go through, it has a different effect on you, on me, on somebody else, on all the the hundreds of thousands, millions of people who serve in combat. There is no one particular thing, right? There's no one particular experience, even though there are some shared some shared experiences that we have. There's no one particular experience that everyone has, and I wanted to reflect that in the book to show that there are experiences that are that are bad, 
their experiences that are good, their experiences that are that are sad, their experiences that are hilarious. There are all these multitude of experiences because war is, I mean, it, it is one of, if not the sort of uh, ultimate experience in life. Um, there's so much that happens in it, around it, and with it. And the when men come out of that, and now women, when men and women come out of, of, of experiencing being deployed, being in combat, there's so much, there's so much to tell. And I picked a number of these men from Bravo Company so that I could focus on them. And as you, you know, as you say, I try to drill down and 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 really tell tell an in-depth story about each of these men. So I take somebody like the guy who opens the book, um, Sergeant Alex Hardergy, right? Sergeant J, as he's known. Sergeant J came to this country from Mexico came in, was snuck across the border by his mom. And at the time, the United States welcomed him with open arms. And what did he do? He, he started serving his country as soon as he could and became an infantryman. And then he lost both of his legs in Afghanistan. And Sergeant Jay tells me, hey, it's, it's, not a, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing that happened to me. I was working. I was at work. And this is one of the byproducts of work. That's one of the responses toward, toward somebody losing their legs. I talked to uh, another guy who he had his foot blown off early in, the, uh, early in their deployment. And he feels almost guilty about it because he left country before the men, uh, the men of Bravo Company had to patrol day after day through those horrible IED-infested fields, right? And he feels almost a guilt that he lost a foot and that he didn't do enough on this deployment. I talked to guys who come back who wish they would have stayed in, guys who are happy they got out. Just I, I try to make sure to show that there is a multitude of feeling and experience that comes with war. And that's, uh, that was one of my primary goals with this book. I think by most measures, this was a rough deployment. That's right. Uh, just judging, just judging by the the costs on the dudes uh, who who were there. What was unique about this experience that had such a high cost uh, for these people? What was unique about this about this deployment was that these men did not get to see their enemy face to face very often. What they saw was the the detritus of what of what their of what their enemy left behind by burying IEDs in the ground for them to find. And part of part of what these men discovered was that that when you're fighting the Taliban, quote unquote the Taliban, it's hard to even know what you're fighting when you're not face to face with them, right? Like who is the Taliban? This is like a question that um some of the men discussed with me was like who is the Taliban? Is it is it that farmer who implanted an IED? Is he really a Taliban or is he a farmer who implanted an ID? Is the farmer who knew an IED was there but didn't say anything Taliban? Is the farmer who doesn't know anything about any IEDs at all, but just once you get the hell off his land, is he Taliban? Like who's the enemy and how do we define that? And if you can't find your enemy face to face, like what um what's what's the sort of like ultimate end? What are you fighting for? Um and what's and who are you fighting? Um, that was part of it. And the other part of it is that the, when you're fighting, when you're fighting an enemy that you can't see, when you're fighting IEDs buried in the ground, it becomes, uh, it becomes a horrible sort of psychological, um, psychological torture every day. You wonder who's going to step on. They start making jokes with each other. Oh man, you know, like, um, is it going to be your day or is it gonna be my day? Hey, what happens if I, you know, if I get, uh, I get my leg blown off, don't save me. Or, and then it becomes, if I get two legs blown off, don't save. Like they start joking about this stuff and it becomes this constant, this, this constant wearing down, uh, of your psyche. And as anybody who's, uh, who, who knows infantry tactics knows, you can't sit back on your haunches when you're in a combat zone and just, and just sort of stay behind, stay bunker. You can't wait. For, you can't wait for the yeah, fight to come to you. Yeah, because by if you seed that ground, you're just giving people, uh, you're just giving the your your enemy, whoever that might be, more chance to 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 fortify around you, to put in IEDs, to to do their patrolling. So you have to get out there every day. So these guys, in order to try to combat IEDs, you have to go out and try to find them every day. Try to uh, you know patrolling these areas every day, and that's just uh, it's just an incredible. Um, 
an incredible task and an incredible strain. And there's no way to do it perfectly correctly, um, no matter what you may may try to do. Um, so that was that that was one of the that was one of the incredible and unique aspects of this guy's deployment is you're fighting an enemy that you never, I say, uh, one of the guys I, I talked to, we talk about a fair fight, right? And he's like, man, the Taliban, you know, they don't want to come out and have a fair fight. And we started talking about it a little bit and it's like, well, what isn't a fair fight? You know, like what is an American fair fight? Yeah. An American fair fight may in our minds be, you know, mano a mano, um, you know, two guys with rifles seeing who has the truest aim and and that's a fair fight. But for Americans, that may be the way a firefight begins, but how does it end? It ends with mortars, with air power, with drones coming on site. It ends up with you being able to talk to your, um, uh, you know, to artillery and stuff on closed communication system that nobody can listen in on. And you got medevac waiting to take you to the hospital if something happens. That's like, hey, that's what Americans think a fair fight is. But for the Taliban, that's not much of a fair fight at all, right? What a fair fight for them is, is being able to put bombs in that blow people up and they never have to get blown up themselves. And when some of these Americans started realizing that they were on the receiving end of a fair fight um, and that the American, the American idea, like there is no fair fight in this world, right? Somebody always has an advantage and oftentimes somebody has a big advantage. And that's, that's another thing that, um, that these men learned um, is this is what fair, a fair fight looks like when you're on the receiving end of it. Ben, when these troops deployed to Argandab district in Kandahar, the mission was one thing. Through their deployment in 2009, it changed to something different. The type of uncertainty that that breeds for a combat unit, especially one that's deployed for so long. I think the studies were all pretty clear by the time these guys had deployed that five or six months into a combat deployment, you've reached max effectiveness. These guys are deploying for a year plus and under multiple different missions. Talk about how the mission changed and what the effect was psychologically, emotionally. Yeah. So the, the men from Bravo company, you know, they first went over as part of this, as part of this entire brigade that was sent to do sort of a, an advise and assist. Uh, and, and they were there to essentially help train Afghan police and army. Uh, and yeah, they did that for the first, for the first bit of their deployment for a few months. And they didn't really have a whole lot didn't really have a whole lot of action. They had one, uh, they had one, the Bravo company had one really incredible firefight they went through. They, they called it the Halloween zombie massacre, actually, because it happened on Halloween. And they just, they rolled into this sort of picture perfect, um, a picture perfect ambush that was, um, well, the, the Taliban was trying to ambush some of the, some of the Afghan soldiers that they were with. Uh, and it was picture perfect way to repel an ambush. And the, the men from Bravo had a, had, you know, had a, a picture perfect, um, firefight that some you know, still, still is used, uh, in it by some of the, some of the senior NCOs to teach how to do maneuver warfare on folks. Like it was great. It was fantastic. It's exactly the sort of firefight you want, but there wasn't that sort of day in, day out tedium of fighting. And then they switched their mission and they went to the Argandab Valley. And then they are every day slogging it out, uh, you know, humping, humping through these, uh, humping through canals, walking through uh, IED laden fields. And, you know, they had, they had a casual, their, their first casualty, their first combat death casualty um, happened um, just after Christmas. So they'd been in country for a while. And like you said, the, the shock, of for a, for a unit of having their first death that far into the deployment is something, and I, I write about this in the book is something that can cause a unit to derail if they're not careful. Right. And it gives them, a. a uh, uh, an incredible wake up call to this new change in mission. They've gone from doing advise and assist stuff where they're driving around in Humvees, mostly drinking a lot of tea um, in, you know, f finding, finding IEDs, but usually finding IEDs that are like not, not too greatly hidden and can be taken care of by EOD to now walking on patrol and going out every day and doing the stuff that, that when you think of what, 
infantrymen do. You know, when you sit down in that recruiter's chair after high school, that's what you think you're, you're, that you're, that you're going to be doing, you know, humping, humping a machine gun through, uh, for hours a day and, you know, walking, walking on patrol. That's what they end up doing. And then they start having casualties doing that. Um, and that change in mission, um, to do those, that, the sort of the thing that paratroopers really sign up to do, to go into combat and go on patrol, to have that switch um, halfway through a deployment can be very, it can be a very difficult, challenging thing. Um, and they, um, they, they worked through it, they pushed through it, and they, uh, they kept on, they kept on patrolling and kept on doing the thing that they were sent there to do. But it was, it was a sort of, it was a sort of shift that very rarely happens on deployment, right? Most, most units deploy, they do the thing they do the entire time that they're deployed. These guys got almost two different deployments back to back. Um, and it was, it was a whipsaw or a whiplash, um, for, for them. Yeah. You know, I heard something recently from a a woman I was talking with. She said her formula for life is expectations minus reality equals frustration. Uh, This person is not a combat veteran. She's a person in corporate America. And I kind of see that same formula applying to these guys and some of their psychological impacts, maybe, or emotional after effects, maybe. And it doesn't have so much to do with the combat. You're quite open in the book, quite blatant about why men go to combat. Some, it's a spasm of violence they're looking for. I can't remember your exact words. You know better than me. But how much of it is expectations and reality not syncing up for these guys? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's. I think that there's a truth to that and a truth to um, – and oddly enough, so when you say expectations and reality syncing up, there's both the like the the – superficial level of that right uh, and uh there's whether or not combat is going to look the way you imagine it to look is going to is it going to look the way that that the teenage you who is watching full metal full metal jacket and dreaming of like of joining up is that what combat's going to look like so there is there's a disconnect of what real combat looks like as opposed to the combat that you see in the movies and on tv right but then there's also a disconnect, um, and this this disconnect is something that uh, I think more and more men and women from this generation of of soldiering are going to start feeling, and something that that people are talking about more, which is this thing um, called moral injury, right? So there's there's a lot of talk of PTSD and TBI, you know, post traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury as sort of uh, they became kind of the signature wounds of this war, but those are those are things that have like real scientific objective um, uh, data points to show you that they're, they're happening. But there's this other thing that we're really doing a better job over the past year or two, um, clinicians and troops and veterans and talking about it. It's this thing called moral injury, which is taking your a deeper view of looking at what you were just talking about, about expectations versus reality. Uh, and moral injury is to kind of define it define it loosely is when the when you put your moral compass down and uh and the needle points in the wrong direction right like you see something that happens in combat or you're uh you're exposed to it or um or you're part of something that just doesn't feel right it's different than the way you were raised right um i've talked to one of the men in the book and for him, his moral compass, um, his moral compass took a horrible hit, and was um, and his true north went spinning when he was first exposed to um, to seeing, uh, seeing, hearing about, and and learning about the practice of bachabazi in Afghanistan, which is um, this uh, horrible practice of um, when when uh, some Afghan men will take young boys and and use them um, use them for, for sexual, for sexual gratification. And it was something that just made the, the expectation, like there's no expectation that you're going to see something like that or hear about that, or that's going to be a reality in your life. If you're, you know, raised in the bosom of, uh, of, of Illinois where this guy was raised and he goes over and sees something like this. And it's not even like the combat trauma or the things you see in combat that, um, that make expectation reality, not meet up. It's, the totality of the picture of of being in a combat zone or being in combat or being deployed overseas that that can have those expectations versus reality not match up um 
I think I probably went on a tangent there to answer <laughs> your question uh, quite fully. But but yeah, like I think that there there's there's multiple aspects to it again because combat is a multi multi-dimensional, um, almost infinitely faceted thing. Uh, and for us to understand that, uh, is to, um, is to know that we're always operating in a gray zone. There's never, there's, you know, very rarely black and white stuff when it comes to, uh, comes to war and, um, to, for us to realize that and was something I really try to do in, in Bravo company in the book is to show in a way that, um, in a way that explains it to civilians who have never been there, but also to help to unpack it for people who have been there, what it means to live in this world of infinite gray rather than start gradations of uh, black and white. You deliver that in the book for sure. Again, the personal details, it's really impossible to convey in this conversation how precise they are and how well understood they are. But these guys really represent a true constabulary type force. Uh, organized as a military, but they're performing police functions, civic functions. And and at the end, they're really performing combat functions. In a way, battle in and of itself, although the consequences could be worse on a personal level, uh, it's more straightforward. It's more clear. So absolutely understand the answer to a very difficult question. But I want to transition a little bit to the coming home and reintegration part of this book. You cover all the phases really well. Recruitment, prep for combat, deployment, and then really coming home is where this story stands apart. But I read something recently about World War II soldiers coming home and how they spoke of war as a precious memory, an experience that was worthy of their youth, that called them to do something grand and important, uh, but left them unprepared for the Machiavellian world, uh, the marketplace, a place hostile to their values. Uh, Alvin Kernan, his memoir on this was particularly good. He, he talked about feeling degraded when he came home, which is, you know, kind of counterintuitive. But I wonder, Ben, is there something screwed up about modern life uh, in America that it fails to deliver these people a purpose when they get home? Well, I don't think that there's anything unique about modern life. Um, it's sort of, uh, I don't know if you remember, remember, uh, um, the, you know, the ancient Romans, they used to every, every generation, they'd say, ah, oh, this generation's softer than last, or things are worse now, you know, oh, oh, mores, oh, tempores, like the time, this time and place we're living in is worse than the last one. And I think it's easy for us to think, oh man, this is different. This is a lot different than the way it was. But I think that in some ways, in some ways it's, it's same as it ever was. Right. And it's very, it's very easy. Um, Memory is a hell of a thing, right? Because as soon as it happens, it's set in stone. I talk about this in the book, um, that it's set in stone, it's adamantine, it's never going to change. But at the same time, it's always changing um, because we're always trying to think back to that thing that happened and, and really remember it well. And we sink into a nostalgia very quickly. Um, and we are we are a nostalgic people by our very nature, right? Like who doesn't, who didn't watch like Nick at night? I guess I'm showing how old I am now. Watch Nick <laughs> yeah. at night when you're a kid, you know, like Andy Griffith. Oh man, Mayberry, yeah. <laughs> that was badass. That was, that's been a great time to live. Well, Mayberry never existed except for on a soundstage somewhere, right? And if Mayberry did exist, there's probably a whole lot of bad stuff, you know, like Otis the drunk, he was in that can quite a bit, you know, like there's a lot of bad stuff. So nostalgia is something that, you know, we always are trying to think back to, to the way things were or to, or to, to, to bring back a, a past time. And I think that, that we can sink into that, um, as veterans and as a society, when we talk about reintegration and, um, and I think even talking about reintegration is, um, it can almost do a disservice to veterans because um, to talk about reintegration is to set up a black and white dichotomy. And again, I don't think there is black and white. There's gray in this world, right? Which it makes it which makes it so difficult to talk about things truthfully because it's it's hard as hell to talk about gray. It's easy to talk about black and white, right? It's easy to um, to be hyper partisan or chauvinistic and whatever thing that you believe in because it's black versus white, but it's not, it's gray. And to talk about reintegration 
is to set aside your service in a way that I think can do harm to both society and to service members, right? Because we're just we're just as as veterans and the people who are coming after us and the people who came before us we're just living this con- <laughs> this like continuum of life right and we're not reintegrating into society we're citizen soldiers to start with you know we are we're serving in an all volunteer military since 1973 all volunteer and even the folks who served in Vietnam in the draft they were citizen soldiers and it's just part of it's just part of that continuum of life now yeah there is a difference. Like you take off that uniform, you're coming someplace new. It is a it is a transition moment. Um, but I wonder if we should stop thinking about it as you know reintegration and think of it more as transition. Um, and to think about the fact that uh, what we the ways that we bring people back and bring them back into society. When we talk about that reintegration. I think it it has us it has us sink into this individualistic. Um, this this very individualistic picture of how we operate as a society and as veterans. This is something I talk about quite a bit in the book and something that really launched the story itself um, by covering this men's reunion. Because as veterans, as soon as you get back from combat and, you know, anybody who's served in, um, in the past 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan knows this, right? As soon as you get back from combat, what happens? You don't come back and stay in the same unit. This isn't like um, this isn't like some militaries um, in, in other countries where you'll stay with an entire unit your entire career. You come back and your unit is broken into pieces and and sent to the sent to the uh, you know to the to to all corners of the of the Marine Corps if you're in the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, whatever. You come back, your unit's broken up. You go here. Your buddy goes there, somebody else goes here, a new officer comes in, new first sergeant comes in, all that stuff happens, and you're set adrift. And so unless you have a, a system where you've gone through something extraordinary with a unit and you have, you, know, you have unit reunions and you stay connected, you are doing this thing almost on your own as you move through. And then when you become a veteran and you go in, you, 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 know, you, you maybe want to get some help. You go to the VA and you go in as an individual and you get an individual treatment, right? It's all like individualized. And we forget that in the military, you had to act as a team to win. And the military has to act as a team um, to implement strategic policy and to implement the will of the country. Uh, and it's only through the strength of, of the unit that somebody, that, that we can succeed. And we forget that, you know, we are... We need that. We need that team around us. We can't just be individuals and that we are brothers keepers. And um, and I think that uh, to circle the long way around the barn back to your question, um, that there is something about modern society that makes it hard to come back to into. But there's some, there was something hard about all societies throughout time that makes it hard to come back. Um, you know, like uh, go back to our, our, you know, our dude Odysseus, right. like coming back from war, right? Like he came back to a pretty, you know, he had a pretty <laughs> crap transition, you know, like, yeah. um, and it's, yeah, there's, there's something about it that is, that makes it difficult, but for, but when we come back as veterans, yeah, so, you know, society owes us something because we've gone and done this on behalf of society, but society provides some of that for us, you know? Like there's no other group in United States of America that gets a free college education when they when they finish doing something. But veterans get that through the GI Bill. So, yes, society owes veterans something for what they've done, but at the same time, veterans can't act aloof and act as if we don't need to give something back as well. Like we owe it to society to, um, to show, uh, to bring some of that hard earned knowledge back with us and inject it into the body politic and to not do so in a way that makes us seem, yeah, like aloof, we know better or, um, or civilians don't know anything. No, it's like, it's the, again, this is a team effort to make this, uh, um, to make this democracy, uh, to, to make this democracy of ours work. Um, so I think that there's a mutual give and take, and that's, uh, that's probably been true throughout the, throughout the entirety of our, um, of our Republic. And we can just very easily, 
sink into nostalgia or to not let history have a seat at the table when we're thinking about that. And so I'll loop back again to something you said at the beginning about in 2009, uh, this infantry unit deploying to Afghanistan deployed as a unit of men. Things have changed since then. But the fact that they're men puts them in a unique spot, a uniquely difficult spot. Your paper today had a new piece out about suicide statistics and how they've increased dramatically in the last year for men, 18 to 34-year-old men, particularly at risk, I believe, veterans, particularly, particularly at risk, male veterans. What did you see of that problem as you looked really uh, closely at this group of men from Bravo Company? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack when talking about, um, when talking about suicide statistics and, um, and how, how those things, how those things affect certain, certain groups of people. Um, I mean, to, I I want to, cause kind of a, um, sort of a disclaimer or a caveat or something at the beginning of this is, um, again, when there's a lot of, you know, we talk about, we talk about, uh, suicide issues or mental health issues with veterans. Um, and by having those conversations, which need to be had and which, you know, we're having here, sometimes, um, we can forget about uh, the growth that comes from, from service. And, uh, just before starting to talk about this, I want to make sure that, this isn't, um, you know, is, isn't assumed that this is just a narrative about the brokenness of being a veteran, but there are those among us who, um, have, who have issues that need to be addressed. Suicide issues. Um, I th- think the way to talk about it is to talk maybe about the way, um, like suicide is not a spur of the moment thing, right? Suicide is something that's planned and thought out for the most part. And what makes it seem spur of the moment is just as in a, um, just as in a, a, a chemical reaction, there's some sort of a catalyst that makes it set off and makes it happen. But all the things are already there, um, to, um, to cause that, to cause that reaction to occur, just need that catalyst. And one of the reasons that I think that through talking with people about this and reporting this for 10, you know, reporting on veterans for 10 years for the paper, um, Part of the reason why men have, uh, especially male veterans, have uh, have uh, have such issues with self harm and with suicide is the means of action that they use. Because you have to have the will to the will to die by your own hand, uh, and you also have to have the means and the training to use those means. And that's why male veterans will um, often die by the use of a firearm because we have been trained in the effective and efficient use of that weapon and we know the effects of it we know how it works and it's pretty damn quick to um to to pull a trigger and make that happen and so i think that that's part that has been one of the reasons why um why male veterans that some some of the suicide issues um come from the use of firearms and you know the the va and the va and dod just recently started a new campaign to try to get gun locks out right just to like if anybody's listening to this and they want to have you know one step removed from that 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 means of um of self-harm being right there Call your local VA. They'll provide you a gun lock. This is like there's some simple things like that that can that can take that that can make that catalyst um, for the chemical reaction much harder to start, right? Or to put that once you know, just keep your ammunition away from your uh, weapon or whatever. But is the idea just to provide a speed bump, just to interrupt that train of thought, or yes, right? And and also if um you know there's people who will have their weapons and uh, they'll lock them up and give their friend the key, right? Because another thing with um that researchers have found is if they're that someone contemplating suicide, it contemplates one mean of that suicide. And if that, if that mean or that method or whatever is not available, then it will deter them from doing it. Right. Like I think, um, I think through it and say, okay, I'm going to, this is how I imagine my death. And it's typically, you know, if it's, if it's through uh, the use of firearms or something by eliminating that, that quick, um, access to those firearms that will prevent me from, from doing something else. Um, cause you know, and really like 
it's it's not it's not a uh, not a truism, but for the most part, uh, researchers have found like somebody who has thought about self harm with a firearm, if that firearm's not available, they're not going to suddenly decide to jump off a bridge or something. It's you take away that the mean that they're thinking about, and that can put enough distance between it to allow them to live another day or to talk through things. Um, so I, I think that there's uh, there's a, a lot of conversations we have to have about. Um, about firearms in, in, in this country and with and veterans of firearms and to do so in a way that is um, that cuts across, um, you know, cuts across political considerations and considerations of, of uh, Second Amendment uh, stuff and, and firearm laws like there, there are things that every responsible firearm owner um, in will, will agree on, you know, like keeping them locked up and away from your kids uh, or, uh, or or whatever. But I think that that's a part of a conversation that um, that we need to have, frankly. And if we're willing to, if we're willing to have, um, uh, if we're willing to have frank and honest conversations about it, we can, we can really do a lot to cross, um, to cross political boundaries and to cross, um, cross civilian military boundaries, um, to talk about those sorts of things. Do you think the, the VA or DOD, um, or, or, or the military are doing enough, uh, to, stick with veterans uh, post leaving the military, post their their experiences in combat to try and uh, diagnose, uh, you know, f- and flag the potential for, for self-harm? Uh, no and yes. Um, so here comes another gray, gray answer instead of black. We love white, gray on right? hot wash. That's good. All right. All right, good. Um, yeah, so no, there there is never going to be enough done, right? Like, um, and to to make a transition from that transition from active duty to to veteran status, um, to to do that well is something that we've been trying to figure out for for years, right? Like anybody who's gone through the separation process, um, no matter what service you were in, I'm sure you've got plenty of complaints about it, right? Um, and I mean. There is more that can be done there, but you know, as a society, we are there's there's a lot that we provide for veterans if they're if they are in a spot where they can where they can reach out and get it right. I mean, whether it's disability disability pay or uh, for for uh, for disability that happened in service, with GI Bill, life insurance, job training, um, access to access to VA hospitals or vet centers. Um, just recently there was the, the burn pit legislation that was passed, um, which, uh, which took care. I mean, that, that filled, filled a void that was, that's been there for, uh, since we've realized that burn pits were, uh, noxious and horrible, uh, a horrible thing that affects so many veterans health. Um, but you know, all those things are out there for, for veterans, but you know, does that fill, does that fill a existential hole that's um, that's in your uh, that's you know somewhere deep down inside? Does that um, answer the the loss of comradeship that you get when you when you leave um, you know when you leave the military? It's like uh, it's like leaving a leaving a sports team or something. It's just you you leave behind so much, right? And what fills that void? And how do we do it? How do we have those conversations? How do we help each other to understand those things? Like it's I mean. On one hand, it's it's up to it's up to us as a nation to provide uh, to provide these things um, and ways to transition healthily and and to live well after service. But it's also up to veterans to to realize that their service is not it's not the defining thing in their the not it's not the defining moment in their life. Right? It's a part of life, and life continues on, and uh, yes, it may be, may be the most consequential thing that a person does. It may be the thing that they look back on and say, that was, that was the best thing I'll ever do, but it's not the, I mean, that is not the, the end of it, right? Like we continue on in life and we have to grow from there and we have to realize like, Hey, uh, like we, we take our service, um, take what we did and use that for good. And, um, I think one of the things that we're also, we're also learning now is for veterans to have a full, <clears throat> a full and meaningful life after service, right? There has, uh, veterans 
a lot of veterans want to have meaning making, right? They want to do something that gives back, something that makes society better. Um, and I mean, you know, for for me, writing about Bravo Company is a way to bring their story um, and the story of sort of combat combat service and being a combat veteran to a broader to a broader community. And that gives me great that gives me a great sense of purpose. And covering the Pentagon and covering the Department of Veterans Affairs for the Wall Street Journal, give, it gives me meaning. It, 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 like, it gives me a reason to use, my, to use my knowledge and to use my work ethic to do something which I, which I think is good. And a lot of veterans are looking for that. So figuring out a way to, um, to help people find that meaning making is so, so important. Um, I mean, not just for veterans, but for everyone. But if we're looking for a way to really help veterans, maybe it's not through uh, coming up with a new, you know, a new diagnostic clinic or something. Maybe it's figuring out a way to help them transition if they were, you know, they want to become a school teacher. They want to become, um, you know, they want to become a, a journalist. They want to do whatever to help help find that path um, so that life is, uh, you know, life is truly rewarding and they're giving back to society. We had on a previous episode, we had a Jocko Willink on and he was talking about transitioning uh, post-service. And and he said something very similar. He said, find a team, find a mission. Uh, and that that's, that's really, it sounds like that kind of structure, that kind of support network obviously is, is what everybody needs. Uh, but it's not something that you can do alone. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, finding a team and finding a mission, um, we're, we're living in, we're living in times right now where there are, um, there are, there are teams and missions that are, that can be divisive. Right. And, um, I think it's important that we recognize, we, we keep, you know, going back to the talk about moral injury and keeping our moral compass or that, that needle pointing North, right. Like to have the true North. Um, and one of the things that we really need to work on as a society right now, and, um, is to make sure that the teams, and the causes that we are um, that we're fighting for, that we um, that we make sure that we check those with our with our moral compasses, right? And that we're not we're not we don't slowly let those slip out of uh, to to stretch this metaphor to breaking. That we don't let that cal you know that calibration slowly slip, right? Um, so we have to find uh, find those whom we trust. Um, the good, the, you know, the good people, the people who, um, people around us who, who are, who are, are really trying to serve the public good and jump on those teams and let them tell us what we're doing well and to give us, um, to give us feedback so we do better. And as I say in the book, um, we know we need people around us to call us out on our bullshit too. So John Waters, uh, final thoughts. The book is fantastic. Bravo Company uh, in Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. Ben, I can only imagine this is 10 years of reporting on these issues, uh, maybe not quite as many in composing this book and kind of living with, at least inside of your head, living with these men. What do you do to transition off of this project? Uh, yeah. So this book, I uh, started writing in 2019, but uh, there is an aspect of it where if yeah, distilled uh, you know, distilled 10 years or more of just experience and, and, uh, and, into writing about it and, um, just seeing, seeing and hearing from people, um, when they, uh, when they, cause I, you know, I wrote this book as, as a journalist, which is to say that nobody in the, nobody in the book, nobody at all was able to see anything pre-publication, right? No, there was no, there was no quote checking with, with people to make sure that they were cool with it. There was nothing with me running this by and being like, Hey, is this fact going to make you feel like a jerk or whatever? I, I did my interviews. I came back, I wrote it and then boom, sent it out the door. There was nobody who, other than just other than fact checking for errors, right? There was nothing anybody could say about it because it was out the door and and done. Seeing that go out the door and arrive in people's mailboxes from Bravo Company, and I just had, um, I mean, just had such anxiety about how this would be received by these men because it's not just this is not a story that's all like you know 
um, fairy tales and gumdrops, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in here that's not so great. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty great, but there's stuff that's not so great too. And <laughs> seeing this, seeing this, you know, sending this to the men and the, the women, because there there are women in the story, even though they weren't in combat. I talked to, um, you know, I talked to the spouse of a man who came home and ended up being a murder suicide. Um, I talked to the dad of one of the guys who's killed in combat and his experience of, of, of having the, uh, having those soldiers in those crisply, crisply pressed uniforms walk up to his front door and knowing what they're about to come tell him that his son has died in combat, talking to all these people about these stories, getting when they read it and they say, um, thank you for, thank you for telling this and it's accurate. Um, and it's real, like, this is the real, this is what it's like. Um, and you know, some of the guys, uh, saying, Hey, you know, you know, you, you held kind of held up this, this mirror for us to see this deployment. Um, some of it wasn't pretty, um, and, but it's life and that's the way it is. But having that feedback from the men who were there to say, yeah, this is, this is a, um, this is a warts and all depictment depiction, sorry. This is a warts and all depiction of of what combat and returning from combat is like. That is um, that's a, a fantastic <laughs> way to transition um, uh, from from writing this book. Uh, and also, John, I want to say um, I think it's a very important thing. Very few people ever ask um, ever ask. Uh, sort of a, a reporter about their experience in reporting something. Just as when you're in the military, very few people ever ask the CO or the sergeant major what, how they're doing, how they're how they're coping with this sorts of things. So I appreciate you asking that question. I think it's something that we need to think about when we're, um, you know, to to sort of bring bring it back to talking about the veteran community. It's something we need to we need to think about is to make sure that we're checking on each other and even the folks who. Um, even the folks who seem, you know, seem the, the, the strong timbers in, in, in this community, they still, they still need a buddy check too. So, um, I appreciate that. And thanks for allowing me to segue into talking about that. But, um, but yeah, like check on each other, you know, it's, uh, it's, (laughs) it's, it's incumbent on us to do that. Battle buddies. That's a good lesson we can all take from the military. Swim buddies, battle buddies, whatever. It shouldn't end. That's right. All right. Well, Hot Wash listeners, go out and find your battle buddy. Find your swim buddy. Check in on each other. The book is Bravo Company in Afghanistan, Deployment and Its Aftermath. Ben Kessley, thank you so much for joining us on Hot Wash. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate appreciate the invite. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.